Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF, the podcast that you've come to appreciate and love, we hope, because it sits at the intersection of law and politics. And what a week at the midweek it has been already. And I'm joined by my host, Karen Friedman Agnifilo. I'm Michael Popak. And today we're going to break down really just what's happened since Monday of this week leading into, into Christmas. Uh, we're going to start with the uh, January 6th committee and their capstone hearing on Monday, in which they not only announced that they're going to be releasing today, Wednesday, while after we record, their 1,000 page or more with exhibits and all sorts of attachments of their final report. They've already issued their executive summary, which if I can make my way through my office, I will actually show to those that watch us on YouTube. This is their um, executive summary, which is about 200 pages by itself, let alone the report. So that's coming out. But of course, what everybody tuned in for and what we've all been patiently waiting for with bated breath since Benny Thompson and Jamie Raskin and others announced it was the referral for all that it's worth by the Department of Justice, I I mean, by the Jan 6 Committee to the Department of Justice of um, whether they believe they have enough evidence that a prosecutor would think they should prosecute crimes against Donald Trump and others. And lo and behold, there were four, including insurrection. And we'll talk about that one. That was sort of a new one for me, uh, for Donald Trump coming out of Jan 6 and the others. And we'll talk about it with my colleague and former prosecutor extraordinaire, Karen Friedman-Ignifilo. And then we're going to talk about Tuesday. That was Monday. Tuesday, the House Ways and Means Committee, all 44 members of it, primarily Democrats who are still in control until Jan 3, voted to release six years of tax returns for Donald Trump, business and personal, that Donald Trump promised to release while he was candidate Trump and never did after much excuse. And the the subcommittee, the committee related to taxation, and this is the committee that oversees the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, and they felt they had no choice but to, in the interest of transparency, to release tax returns, especially after they made a finding that the Internal Revenue Service, which was then under the control of Donald Trump by way of his Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, did not properly carry out their audit function of the sitting president, Donald Trump, at all until two years into his term and only after the House Ways and Means Committee put a lot of pressure on the Internal Revenue Service did they start but not complete an audit of Donald Trump violating law, breaking the law. And we'll talk more about the rationale behind the House Ways and Means Committee's vote. And then we'll talk about the start on Monday of the second seditious conspiracy trial in the last 25 years by the Department of Justice against the Proud Boys, um, who were led by Enrique Tarrio and a number of others. All the leaders of the Proud Boys are up on trial in New York again, following closely on the footsteps or on the heels of the Oathkeeper, first Oathkeeper trial in which Kelly Meggs and Stuart Rhodes who are the counterparts to the leaders of the of the Proud Boys, were already convicted of conspicuous, a seditious conspiracy. And we'll see what happens uh, with some uh, observations by Karen and me related to that. So we've got a busy week, Karen, to cover, and we're only at Wednesday. 
at know, the midweek. We're, we're, we're packing it in. But, uh, you know, the chickens are all coming home to roost now for Donald Trump. And, you know, if year one after his his noisy departure, unwilling departure from the White House was all about getting getting off the mat after that knockout blow on Jan 6th and doing investigations, year two is all about the uh, recommendations for indictment. And year two, two and a half will be about trials and hopefully convictions. But before we jump in, Karen, I'm going to do something at the beginning that sometimes we do at the end, but I want to do it while we've got everybody's attention here during this holiday edition of Midweek. People always ask, how can we support what Midas Touch, the Midas Media Network, Legal AF are doing on a regular basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute by minute basis to preserve our democracy and to provide valuable information to those about the intersection of law and politics? Well, there's a number of ways to do it, and none of it costs you any money. One is become a subscriber to the Midas Media Network, Midas Touch YouTube channel. We'll have our producer, Adam, put up a link for that during tonight's uh, uh, video podcast. And uh, we'd like to get to a million subscribers, again, free subscriptions. Um, it helps in every way imaginable to keep this organization, this um, uh, media network that's not controlled by corporations in any way, but is self-funded, keeps it alive. So let's get from seven, 780,000 subscribers to over a million to start off the new year. Wouldn't that be a, a nice gift for all those that work so hard on your behalf? The second thing you can do is on that channel, you'll find Legal AF, along with the other shows that are produced and platformed by the Midas Media Network, including the Midas Brothers podcast, um, uh, Mea Culpa by uh, Michael Cohen, The Politics Girl, and the rest. They're all there. All of our video content for every show is sitting there. In addition, um, we've been doing daily, hourly, 10 times a day, uh, what we call hot takes or trending takes, lasting between... 10 and 15 minutes about a breaking news item or an analysis that we don't think should wait until the midweek or weekend edition. And by clicking on and watching those videos, you're getting real-time analysis and breakdown and information from Legal AF anchors. And you're also helping to support the network by, let's face it, getting eyeballs onto our videos, which is, which is part of, uh, part of the, uh, the YouTube uh, media strategy of ours, and that's important as well. Uh, and of course, Legal AF is sitting there, and you can watch it if you if you don't have to, if you don't uh, want to just listen to it. And then, of course, go onto all of our uh, platforms where you can pull our audio podcast and and subscribe to that, and follow and like and review there. Again, everything that I've just identified, Karen, is free. It's free, but it matters, and it's important to us. And I didn't want to leave it to the end as we're all dashing off for the our various uh, things to do at the end of the show. I wanted to do it really right up front. But enough of me and the show and how to support us. Let's break in and have you lead off, Karen, with you, you watched it, you commented on it with me and others. Let's talk about what happened on Monday with the Jan 6 committee, its report, its, its four recommendations, any surprises that you thought were in there that you weren't expecting, and just your overall sense of the of the criminal referral by the depart by the Jan 6 to the Department of Justice. 
Yeah, so it was really interesting to see their final hearing and watch their summary of their summaries and bring together like a summation almost or a conclusion and then vote to make criminal referrals. Uh, it was, it was, I thought it was really good. I read the 150, 200 page executive summary and I was surprised that I've never seen an executive summary that's 200 pages long. I, I would expect the report to be more, more that size, but I guess it's going to be massive. But the executive summary was quite long, quite dense. And it reminded me of what prosecutors and what we used to do with big complicated cases in the office and put together a prosecution memo. And a prosecution memo lays out the pros and the cons, the evidence that's admissible, et cetera. And it lays out just the legal analysis and what potential charges and what potential defenses there are. And we use the prosecution memos to make decisions about whether or not to charge a case and or whether or not to bring a case. So that's what the executive summary reminded me of. Uh, but I have to say, I still have very mixed opinion about whether or not they should have made a criminal referral. I do think that um, from from a legislative branch perspective, look, they they did the the select committee did the hard work. They were started investigating Trump and Jan Six and creating a record that's going to last till the end of time. I mean, our, our great grandchildren are going to be, there's going to be entire classes in law school or in college that are going to be devoted just to towards analyzing the events of January 6th. And, and they did that. And I think it was the most consequential and important hearing, certainly in my lifetime. And it's been widely reported that that's what motivated and got the DOJ to finally a year later start investigating uh, Trump and his top advisors. So because of that and because they're the ones who are going to be credited throughout history with setting the record straight and doing the hard work and interviewing the thousands of people, et cetera, from their perspective, I think they had to go on record and say, this is what we found and this is what we think. And therefore, these are the charges that I think should be brought. I wish they had left the report at that and not gone so far as to then say, I'm now giving a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. And so now I'm going to put on my prosecutor's hat and explain what I mean by that. If, if I'm the Department of Justice, so backing up. A criminal referral done by Congress, for example, or an or any agency, frankly, happens all the time. You know, if the IRS is reviewing taxes and they see tax fraud, evidence of tax fraud, they're going to turn that over and make a referral to the Department of Justice because that's evidence that they've uncovered of a crime that wasn't already known to the prosecutors. And, and things like that happen every single day. And that's how largely how the Department of Justice gets a lot of their cases, their criminal cases. A case like this, we all know they already, the Department of Justice through the appointment of Jack Smith already has a investigation that is open and very active. If they were slow the first year, we know they are no longer slow. And so they don't, the Department of Justice through Jack Smith, through the special counsel, does not need a criminal referral from Congress. And in fact, I would be slightly, um, 
irritated that they that the Congress did that the select committee did make criminal referrals only because now there is going to be a claim of part like pressure partisan pressure and politics and I know that's people will say well they were going to make that claim anyway and that is true but I just think that this now make something political that should not have been. And so I do I do wish they would have done the same thing they did in the report by saying these are this is the evidence we've uncovered and these are the witnesses that we interviewed that support this evidence and these are the charges you might want to consider. But I, I wish they had just stopped there. It's it's a slightly subtle point, but I just really worry that this could potentially uh, make it a little political. On the flip side, uh, there are some things that the DOJ that this could one could say this helped them. So the report and the executive summary is is a roadmap for the prosecutors. I mean, to the people who say, "Oh, is this? Are they going to be going too slow? Are things very slow?" This is now a roadmap to say, "Don't don't worry about investigating." or about interviewing these witnesses or looking at this evidence, focus your efforts on these people who say these crimes, et cetera. And so it, it absolutely gives a roadmap to the special counsel and the Department of Justice, but they do still need to do their own work. They still need to inv investigate themselves. They still need to kick the tires. And because at the end of the day, if the evidence that's uncovered is not admissible, it's useless. It has to be both relevant and and admissible in a court of law. And so the Department of Justice is going to interview people. They are going to um, collect evidence, gather evidence, and they're even going to be able to get things that the select committee could not do because they have more tools in their toolbox, right? Don't forget prosecutors can do things like issue grand jury subpoenas or search warrants or people who are who who say, um, I take the Fifth Amendment, you know, I take I take the fifth and I'm refusing to cooperate. Prosecutors, if they want that testimony, they can compel it by immunizing them, by saying, you know, when, when someone takes the fifth, what they're saying is, uh, I don't want to speak because I might incriminate myself. And I have a right not to incriminate myself based upon the Fifth Amendment of the, of the United States Constitution. So what prosecutors do is they say, well, you know what, we will give you immunity so that even if you do incriminate yourself, you cannot be prosecuted for it. And that neutralizes anybody who takes the fifth and you can compel their testimony. And so the prosecutors uh, through Jack Smith are going to likely um, decide who to do that with and they will gather more evidence. And so they will have a lot more evidence than the January 6th committee. And we'll see if they can get evidence that is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Some people will say, well, you only need probable cause to make an arrest. Why do you need proof beyond a reasonable doubt? And I can assure you that no prosecutor is going to uh, arrest the former president of the United States on probable cause. They're going to wait until they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt and make sure they have proof beyond reasonable doubt before they make such an extraordinary, extraordinary step of arresting a former president. One last thing uh, before I, I turn it back over to you um, is, you know, there's there's the, the January 6th select committee said we're going to release everything 
right? We're gonna get it out there, all the evidence, all the testimony, uh, release it publicly. And I can understand why they're doing that because look, if they don't get it out now, the minute that, that Congress changes hands to the Republicans, that stuff's gonna be lost forever. However, uh, and the other reason, by the way, I, I well, however, my, I'll go back to what I was going to say. Um, my concern with doing that is, yes, that means the Department of Justice also gets it, because if you're releasing it to everyone, that includes the Department of Justice. But that's tricky because, uh, because witnesses will now have access to other people's testimony and they could tailor their testimony, for example. They could prepare themselves with prior other people's statements and tailor their testimony differently. And so as a prosecutor, that's something you don't want. That's why prosecutors typically during the investigating investigation phase keep uh, information and records close to the vest. But I get why why they're doing it, because again, if they just turned it over to the prosecutors, uh, even if there is a criminal case or not, let's say there is no criminal case brought, then, then this stuff will never see the light of day. And I think the January 6th committee wants to make sure that this sees the light of day. And so they're gonna release it all and the prosecutors will will go through it. And, and like I said, build their own case, but this provides a roadmap for them. Let so me pick that, up. That where was you my just, take. Yeah, let me pick up where you left, where you just left off, and then I'll work backwards. Um, I understand why they're releasing it to the public. I think they have to, in terms of transparency. Although it does have an impact on the future willingness of people to participate in future. Um, I hope we don't have another Jan sixth event, but future committees, because everybody will know whatever whatever got said to them in private um, is really in public, and I'm sure they were warned that at the time that they participated. But I don't think they have a choice, just like when we get to the next segment talking about the House Ways and Means Committee, the timing of when their work is over, given that the Democrats lost control of the House, back to your political observation, is is important and it's relevant. And let's not fool ourselves. If the House Ways and Means Committee was going to be continue to be controlled by the Democrats and by Chairman Neal, maybe they would... Maybe they would release the tax returns to the public in in, in the uh, in the voice of uh, in the interest of transparency, or, or maybe they wouldn't, because they'd have more time to work with them and come up with legislation to address the issues that that have been found by reviewing his tax returns. I'll save that for the next segment. Here, same thing. Um, Jan six is uh, I I called it a going at a business sale. I mean, we're we're at we're at once the report is released, we're at like out of business. And the um, information that they want to transmit, A, should be transmitted directly to the Department of Justice. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's been a little bit of a shifting, a little bit of a shape shifter about how fast they have been or are willing to provide all of the information. I think it's great it's going to the public where it should have gone months ago is the Department of Justice. It is an undisputable fact that the Department of Justice was not able in real time with velocity, obtain the cooperation of the Jan 6 committee to obtain parallel to Jan 6's work to obtain the 1,000 plus witness statements and documents until the Jan 6 committee was done with them, almost completely done with them. In fact, based on reporting, and I just did a trending take on this this morning, it looks like that up until about December 5th, the Department of Justice had little turned over to them from Jan 6th, and only in December 
in the first week in December was Jack Smith pounding the table, literally with a letter to Benny Thompson and phone calls behind the scenes, able to get at least two streams, two work streams of data out of the Jan 6 committee. Also shows you where the grand juries are now under the leadership of Jack Smith. One work stream has to do with the false electors and John Eastman. And the other work stream has to do with information that the Jan 6 uh, committee developed concerning the interference with the Georgia election, meaning Jack Smith may have been playing catch up for a while against Fawny Willis. Um, I say that as a joke, prosecutors are all working on the same side ultimately, but there can be little turf wars related to state prosecutors and federal prosecutors. But Jack Smith is catching up in a hurry about the interference by Donald Trump with a phone call to Brad Raffensperger and others, along with Mark Meadows, to try to interfere with that election and find 11,000 votes. So th that came flying out of the Jan 6 committee, almost spoon fed out to the Department of Justice, but only now, like today. like. I think it's appalling, frankly, that at the same time that I'm getting access to the thousand witness statements is about the same time the Department of Justice is getting access to it. They should have been working shoulder to shoulder with no daylight um, on the investigation, and they weren't. And that's just that's just the reality. And for whatever reason, the Jan 6 people, most of them who didn't get reelected on the Republican side, will be writing memoirs and they'll tell the story about why they didn't cooperate with the Department of Justice in real time. I thought, again, the as you said about the recommendation and the appearance of politics coming into play again demonstrates the masterstroke by merrick garland to see this coming that the jan 6 committee would try to box him in with a series of symbolic recommendations which are important to the public to you know the the bully pulpit that that the jan 6 committee has if you will usually reserved for the president but in this case for the jan 6 committee to um, influence the direction of prosecutions or put pressure on Merrick Garland, although I think he's, you can't put pressure on Merrick Garland, but at least the public appearances of that. Okay, I get it. And that, that was important. But Merrick Garland, seeing that in advance, said, I'm going to get an independent special counsel appointed be, who's not political because I know I'm going to get a recommendation from what is, by definition, a political body, one that was 95% democratic. And so again, reinforces the foresight, the chess master, grand chess master of Merrick Garland in appointing Jack Smith. The report, which will drop, could be right between now and a couple hours from now when we do the live chat, is people have seen drafts of it, so we can talk about it. It's gonna be eight chapters, no surprise. One of it, chapter one is going to be the big lie perpetrated by Trump and all of his supporters even before the election even began and, and then carried through all the way to the very end. The two is going to be the pressure on the state governments and, legis and state legislatures, all, always by Trump or those around him. Three is going to be the fake electors and the use of the fake electors. And so far, those, those next two Pressure on state governments and fake electors are also the subject we know of the Department of Justice focus because of all the subpoenas that came flying out to these entities uh, by the Department of Justice and their grand juries in uh, around Thanksgiving. Uh, fourth is going to be um, Trump's pressure and strategy to pressure the Department of Justice at the time to do his bidding. Mainly Jeff Clark, 
to appoint him in the closing days of his administration to appoint Jeff Clark as the acting U.S. attorney in order to write letters around the country, including to Georgia, claiming that the Department of Justice had some sort of uh, factual basis for arguing that there was election fraud when there was not. Um, so pressure and, 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 an, and, an, and an attempt by the president to co-opt the Department of Justice. Uh, fifth is going to be pressure on Pence. Pressure on Mike Pence, primarily under a strategy developed by John Eastman, the constitutional half scholar that Donald Trump employed, um, uh, that, that uh, Pence had something other than a administrative ministerial role in the electoral vote counting. It could throw it over, not just to the um, new electors, but to the state houses and have a vote of the state houses, each one being equal, at a time when the Republicans controlled the majority of the state houses. So Alabama having one vote, New York having one vote, California having the same vote as Idaho. And so that would have been, a, a, if that had happened and that had been upheld constitutionally, that would have been a landslide for Donald Trump by the vote of the state houses. And so there was the pressure on Pence related to that. The sixth chapter in the full thousand page report to be released today by the Jan 6 committee will focus on the summoning of the mob to Washington by Donald Trump, including his tweets in December about it being wild. You got to be there, which was part of his conspiracy and his strategy. Seven is something, Karen, you talked about at length when it happened in real time on our podcast about the 187 minutes of dereliction of duty as Donald Trump sat in the dining room fiddling as Washington and the Capitol burned. That's a focus because that's also a potential crime and shows mens rea or criminal intent by Donald Trump once it was clear that this was not just a White House tour that had gotten out of control. And then lastly, the actual physical attack on our cradle of democracy and our seat of government on the Capitol on January 6th. And uh, as you noted, it's about a 100-page executive summary and it's about a thousand page report. So uh, yeah, I, they probably could have done an executive summary a little bit shorter, but uh, uh, but they didn't. Now, the most interesting thing for me were the charges. I'd always expected obstruction of an official proceeding. It's the one that we've talked about as being debated uh, at the DC Court of Appeals and ultimately at the Supreme Court about whether that 2002 law passed by Congress to initially to fight corporate crime is applicable uh, about what happened on Jan 6th and the lead up to Jan 6th, but they recommended obstruction of official proceeding. I wasn't surprised by that. I wasn't surprised by a conspiracy to make a false statement to the National Archive, which is the fake elector certificates. I wasn't surprised by the companion charge that they're recommending of conspiracy to defraud the United States, which is also sort of related to the fake electors and the certificates there. The one that I found and they led off with most interesting, and for many reasons, many layered reasons, is the aid and comfort to an insurrectionist, aid and comfort to an insurrection charge against Donald Trump. And the only other person really mentioned by Jamie Raskin in his closing presentation of John Eastman, plus others, it's always plus one, plus others. And that one is very, very important. A, I hadn't, ta I hadn't heard about it talked about. I hadn't heard about it talked about as being a part of the grand jury process in, uh, that the Department of Justice is leading in Washington. But it does have, talk about the layers here, it does have an impact because 
If if the Department of Justice now says, hmm, let's look into aid and comfort of an insurrection, that then leads, all roads then lead to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and Article 3, which is the disqualifying provision that disqualifies somebody from public office who participated in an insurrection, meaning everybody's hopes and dreams that Donald Trump is not able to even run for office happens because he's con charged with and convicted of a charge related to insurrection. So I know why they let off with that one. That was a crack across the knees to Donald Trump that he's an insurrectionist and there's constitutional disqualification implications of that. The and you know it's based on you know Judge Mado already found in one of his rulings in Washington that there was enough for insurrection and a conspiracy on insurrection, including possibly the president, as did Judge Carter in reviewing it at a lower standard of proof, proof burden of proof, that um, in his courtroom in California related to John Eastman's emails and all of that. So looks listen uh, the other problem I have that you mentioned from a prosecutor standpoint, I'll give it to you from a defense attorney standpoint, is that there may be an argument that all of the material that the Jan 6 committee has developed is the government retaining materials that may have exculpatory information in them, meaning helpful to the defense to show innocence. And if it is deemed to be, and this will have to be litigated, if it is deemed to be government held and withheld information while trials were going on next door, that could be a violation of what we call, refer to as the Brady law and the Jenks law. And an, a creative defense lawyer, and we've seen a few of them, could argue, I didn't get a fair trial because I didn't get a lot of that witness statement stuff that the Jan 6 committee had because they, and they didn't, and they're the government and they didn't turn it over to me. Now the Department of Justice is going to say, we didn't have it either. And it wasn't in our hands, but there's going to be this fight. There could be this fight about whether that is material that should have gone to defendants on trial and defendants to be on trial, like we're going to talk about the Proud Boys. What do you think about that, Karen? Yeah, look, I, there could be Brady in there for sure. And people who are going to be combing through the evidence that once it gets uh, made public will, will make exactly the argument that you just said. Um, I will. I do think, though, with separation of powers, there is it will be very, very hard for a defense attorney to prevail because what they'll what the government will say is what you just said, that it was not in our control and we did not have possession of it or control over Congress or that material, because, again, even though it's government, it's a separate branch. And so I don't think that will fly. I, I do think there are uh, some interesting defenses um, that will obviously be made by Trump and others if if the January 6th charges are brought. Things like, um, you know, we were I was exercising my my First Amendment right as opposed to inciting a riot or inciting people to violence. And, you know, that, that's going to be heavily litigated. You know, there, there's a case, uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio, where it said uh, it's not incitement unless you have the imminent ability to launch people into violence. And I think that uh, I think that's that's where some of the the fight is going to be between that that Jack Smith is going to have to wrestle with and whether or not that was imminent. And you know, again, 
evidence has to be admissible in court. And th these are, there's are, there are some real murky legal issues uh, that the report, when you read the executive summary, I think you really get a sense that these are tricky, complicated legal issues. And there's a lot of evidence, a lot of information. And my prediction is somebody, th there are many, many investigate, criminal investigations happening, both on the federal and state level. And somebody has to go first. And I think once somebody goes first and prosecutes Donald Trump, I think you're gonna see many of the others quickly go after that. I just, I get the feeling nobody wants to go first. And I think the way it's going to go, if I had to guess, is rather than waiting until they have absolutely everything they could possibly have because it's so voluminous and because it's so complex, they might just, for example, peel off the Mar-a-Lago case, which I do think is extremely straightforward and much less complicated. And so I can imagine a scenario where Jack Smith brings the Mar-a-Lago case and perhaps the Georgia case, the same thing that Fonnie Willis is bringing. Because to me, those two are fairly straightforward, fairly easy, and, uh, and they could just bring those quicker than they could bring a case involving the other charges and the criminal referrals that were done uh, in this, you know, by the select committee. I just think that's much more sweeping and much more complicated. And frankly, prosecutors, one, once they, they start to bring charges and once the cases start, they can always either supersede the indictment or bring another indictment. So just because they start with one, I think I think it, it absolutely doesn't mean they can't do the rest, but I think it'll just somebody needs to go first. And and I just don't think I, I think this particular case for for Jack Smith to prosecute Trump for the Jan 6 insurrection, which I think he deserves to be prosecuted for. And it's clear that that he committed that crime. I think that that is going to take time. I think that's going to take time. I think there's still other people below Trump that are going to need to be arrested and uh, potentially flipped as cooperators. I think there are people who you're going to have to immunize. There, there's just a lot more work that has to be done to get to the point where you can prosecute Trump for the Jan 6 um, insurrection. I think it's ultimately going to happen, but I think that case is complicated and going to take much longer. But I suspect, like I said, you're going to see some of these other these other um, charges that are much, much easier to bring and much more straightforward without these murky legal issues. I think you're going to see them coming sooner mm -hmm. rather than later. All right. That's, uh, let's move on then on that prediction to the House Ways and Means Committee voting on Tuesday in a closed door session, but one that will be made ultimately public through the release of the transcript of all the statements that were made by the 44 members, mainly Democrat, but a few Republicans, to release Donald Trump's tax returns. And for all of those that may be following some of the Republican trolling on this issue about, oh, no one's safe and everybody's tax returns and Supreme Court justices' tax returns and Joe Biden's tax return, nobody's Nobody's safe now from this precedent that's been set. You might you might wonder how we got here and why it's appropriate for the legislators to do what they just did, which I believe it was. Let me give a little bit of the background. Donald Trump came into office having promised as candidate Trump on various um, talk shows and on the campaign trail that he would release his tax returns. 
that was an idle promise that never was fulfilled. In fact, he backflipped and and, uh, and backtracked and walked back that um, that statement on numerous times and finally dug in and said, I, I'd like to, I'd like to uh, release them, but I'm under an audit and you can't release your, uh, your tax returns when you're under an audit. That is a made up fictitious fantasy rule that Donald Trump, just because he said it with some sort of commanding Trumpian voice, thought people were going to believe him. Most of them did. There's no rule that says, well, you're under an audit. You can't release your tax returns as a presidential candidate. He then got into office having successfully hidden from public view all of those tax returns, something that no modern president had ever done. I think Joe Biden has released like 25 years of his tax returns. And others have done the same, including Obama, and Carter, and George W. Bush, and Bush, all the way back, Nixon. I mean, there was even fights over Nixon's tax returns, but they were eventually turned over. And somewhere along the line, in this separation of powers that Karen touched on earlier, the checks and balance, part of checks and balance is that, that Congress has oversight over certain branches of government and agencies of the government, one of them being the Internal Revenue Service that reports ultimately to committees of the House Ways and Means Committee. And, uh, and boy, do they need oversight, because what happened, apparently, is that for the first more than two years that Trump was in office, he successfully avoided turning over any of his tax returns except for one little thing. He broke the law. This is going to this is going to be shocking to people that Donald Trump found a line and crossed it. Um, the, the law that he broke is that the IRS, which is under his control through his cabinet secretary of the Treasury, and that in this case, Steve Mnuchin at the time. So he ultimately report the IRS ultimately reports through the Treasury secretary to the executive branch. The uh, IRS did not do its job because Steve Mnuchin hollowed them out, didn't give them enough budget, and didn't make auditing his boss a priority. So they didn't, even though by law, by statute, the IRS is required to perform an audit function over the president of the United States and look at his returns and understand his returns. Meaning if you don't understand the returns because they're so complicated and so convoluted and have so many pages, then you IRS go bring in experts from the outside world at the big four accounting firms or somewhere else, and you put them on this project and you have them, um, you have them audit the president. Well, that didn't happen. And by 2019, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, who's currently the chairman, um, Richard Neal, went to the IRS chairman and said, why haven't you done the audit? You're two years and more into the presidency. And he got a lot of, I don't know, humna humna, we haven't, it's hard, or whatever he said. Uh, or, or my favorite, which came out in the report from yesterday, uh, we assumed that because lawyers and certified public accountants were involved that the tax returns were fine. When has the IRS ever taken a position that somebody's private auditing firm is enough for them in terms of tax avoidance or tax, um, tax reporting? I'll tell you when, never especially when, as we know now, the CPA firm involved, Mazers, just a year ago came out and disclaimed all of their prior opinions saying that they are likely false and can't be relied upon because they had been manipulated by their client, the Trump Organization, and Donald Trump. So Neil had had enough after bringing in the IRS commissioner uh, who was reporting to Trump ultimately and, and getting double talked. So he made a demand as he's allowed to do, as the House Ways and Means Committee is empowered to do under statute 
directly to the IRS to get the tax returns. They're allowed to do that in certain circumstances. And certainly a, um, a uh, president who is not um, being transparent in his foot dragging and is hiding his returns would appear to be that type of scenario that was envisioned by the statute. And Steve Mnuchin, the then Treasury Secretary, appointed by Donald Trump, said, no, I'm not going to do that. He refused, which required a lawsuit to be filed in 2019 by the House Ways and Means Committee in a federal court. And lo and behold, it got assigned to a Trump appointee, a Trump-confirmed judge in Terrence McFadden. Terrence McFadden took his sweet time waiting until after the 2020 election, so almost a full year and a half, and didn't get around to issuing a ruling until November of this year, two years after he had gotten the case, and sided with the House Ways and Means Committee. Even a Trump judge, although he gave his old, he gave his, his I'd call him his boss, he gave Donald Trump, his patron, a, uh, a, a big break by ho- sitting on the whole case for two years until after the election. But once, once he made his ruling, Trump took the perfunctory appeal to the D.C. Court of Appeals and lost. He took an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, dominated by people that he appointed, and lost. And then finally, just a few weeks ago, he had a turnover, or the IRS had to turn over, the uh, tax returns, these six years of tax returns. But look what the House Ways and Means Committee, in order to perform their constitutionally required oversight function, had to do, and the time that had to be wasted and burnt in order to do it, to finally get their hands on the tax returns in the 11th hour before they were going out of business and being replaced by a new committee that's going to be dominated by Republicans. So I think the new rule is, for all those that are up in arms, here's the new rule. If you're a candidate for president, or you're running, or you are the president, and you don't voluntarily turn over your tax returns, the House Ways and Means Committee is going to get your returns and make them public. So you have a choice. You can turn them over to the media, which is what all the other, uh, which is what all the other um, presidents and candidates did, or the House Ways and Means Committee is going to do it for you. That's the new rule. I don't think it's anything else than that. And they had no choice in the interest of transparency and to shine a light a light of sunshine on this musty, um, corrupted IRS who, who had it concede they did not properly perform their audit function and broke the law, and Trump allowed them to do it in not performing their audit. And now they're going to properly recommend new legislation, the House Ways and Means Committee, about how to properly require presidential candidates to disclose their tax returns and how the audit should work for president so we never have another Donald Trump. Now, fortunately for us, the New York Times got their hands on a lot of these same um, tax returns two years ago in 2020 because Mary Trump, the niece, uh, had had sets of them because she was a beneficiary of a trust. And so she turned them over, over over the complaints of Donald Trump in a lawsuit, turned them over to the New York Times who did their analysis. 11 out of 18 years that they looked at, Donald Trump never paid one dime of federal income tax. One year, he got an $80 million tax refund um, with a lot of very curious tax deductions that don't seem to be supported by anything. And now we're seeing the full report and the tax returns that are coming out to the public and will end up in the hands of the prosecutors. Karen, 
couple of couple of questions for you, and then I'll turn it over to you on a prosecutor side. Do you think it was politics or good government that the committee have voted to re to release to the public and otherwise the tax returns? And what do you think it means for ongoing prosecutions and future prosecutions of Donald Trump now that these returns will be available to all that want to see them? So. Look, I think they have no choice but to release them because, as you said, they're going out of business in a few days. And so had the judge not sat on this ruling for two years and had the committee been able to perform the review that they were trying to do, I think I think it's just a timing issue. I think they just have no choice but to release them, frankly. Um, as far as what, what this means, you know, I, I have... I, my my spidey sense went up a little bit when it came to this story. I I don't I don't know. I I there's something about this that really bothered me, and I just have a di slightly different take. And for so f number one, Donald Trump claimed in 2016 when he was running for president that he was being audited, and therefore he couldn't turn over his tax returns. He didn't say, you know, it's they're private. I don't have to. I don't care about tradition and that every other president since Nixon has has voluntarily given them over, he said, I'm under audit and therefore I can't turn it over. And what we learned this week is that there was no audit that he was under. And so he lied. That's just an, an outright, outright lie. The second thing that really bothered me is that the way this is being said is that, that Richard Neal contacting the IRS is what that same day caused them to start the audit. To me, that just was a foil for Trump. That was just them saying, oops, he lied in 2016 and he wasn't under audit. So now we're going to start the audit just so he doesn't have to turn them over. I, I don't know. I, I think it wasn't just that now they're about to do their job and now they're going to start the audit. I actually think they partly did it that same day for that reason, just so that they could cover for him. And and I do think that it does call for new legislation because, as you said, you know, the president is the person who appoints the commissioners. And yes, they have to be confirmed by the Senate, but this is his IRS. And so you can't you can't expect them to investigate their boss. It just, you need something more independent uh, when it comes to presidential tax returns, I think. So as far as future prosecutions and whether or not anyone gets prosecuted for this, I mean, as you know, the Manhattan DA's office fought and also went to the United States Supreme Court to get his tax returns and they've had them under lock and key all these years, that was under Cy Vance. So presumably, that investigation is still ongoing and and alvin bragg the new da says that investigation is still ongoing this could potentially bring to light it, there will be lots of people who are going to lots of experts who are going to be studying his tax returns and when, once they are released and there are going to be lots of people who come forward and say this he committed a crime when he did this or he didn't commit a crime when he did that but part of the problem is without the supporting documentation these are just numbers and so to the extent that what supporting doc is documentation will also be released will be interesting right will, will there be receipts will there, there be you know 
um, loan applications? Will there be financial statements? Like what? What is what? When there is an audit, right? It's not just the tax returns. The IRS asks you for backup documentation. And so presumably, once they started that audit, presumably Trump gave them some backup documents. And it'll be interesting to see uh, that information as well. And I think that will help prosecutors because they may or may not have that backup documentation. So, so this one will be interesting to see. But again, there's just something really fishy going on here that I think needs to be investigated further uh, now that the Ways and Means Committee is going to be disbanded by, by the new Congress. Yep, I agree with you. I think it's, um, we don't know where this is going to lead, but it, it's, um, it's another example of um, a new cache of cash of, of uh, data and information against Donald Trump that will be used in some way, shape, or form. It's not going to just lay on the table because the, the House Ways and Means Committee released it. Somebody's going to pick it up and run with it. And, um, and we'll be reporting about it. Let's talk about the, reporting. The one Let's... thing I will say before, just really quick, I, I, you know, to all the, the naysayers who say that, you know, the House Ways and Means Committee was, was looking to do this protect as a pretext, right? That they just wanted his tax returns. They just wanted to release it. And it's a pretext. I think the one thing that's clear is, and they, and they said, you know, no, we are looking to see what legislation needs to be changed. I think the one thing that's clear is the legislation does need to change because the audit, as you said, did not happen, even though the law said that. So I think anyone who says that uh, is wrong because it was not pretextual. The law has to change. Yeah, it's not. This wasn't about politics. This was about proper oversight and a checks and balance system. Let's talk briefly about the start. We don't have much to talk about because the trial is still in jury selection mode. But we want to put put on everybody's radar that the second seditious conspiracy based charge against that other heinous group that was out at the Capitol and planning for the insurrection and used as a tool and instrument by Donald Trump and his henchmen like Roger Stone and Giuliani and Mike Flynn, Proud Boys, are going to trial now. This is the group led by Enrique Tarrio out of Florida. Um, he, he was the head, along with Ethan Nordine, Joe Biggs, and Zach Rell and others, who, listen, they pride themselves on being, no, pri no pun intended, on being street fighters uh, for, for white supremacists. Um, the same group was in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, this same group, if you shut your eyes and just listen to the rhetoric, is no different than the neo-Nazis, the John Birch Society, um, any of the white supremacy-based groups, the KKK. Uh, they all use the same tropes, the same rhetoric, the same racism, the same bigotry. And uh, their assignment was just different. Their assignment this time was to help somebody that they thought supported their ideals. Uh, as the old uh, line goes, Donald Trump may not be a racist, but racists think he's a racist. And certainly the Proud Boys believe that he was one of their own. Um, and so there's a lot of planning that they did for violent, a violent overthrow. In fact, it is the Proud Boys, at least two of them, that were the first to breach the Capitol and the Capitol doors. And that led to the other 900 people uh, following behind them. And, and it wasn't by accident. The Proud Boys on video in their social media under on their own in their own words, led by Bullhorn, by walkie talkie, by what they thought were um, secret and encrypted uh, apps that they were using to communicate with each other, both before, during and after. 
Um, and these are the leaders of the group. And this is the closest thing. The parallel would be Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, who were convicted of, uh, of by the in the Oath Keepers trial. Now, um, again, like the Oath Keepers, there's two Proud Boy trials. This one is of leadership. And, uh, you know, the Department of Justice uh, did well in the Oath Keepers trial, but learned a lot also because they got a hung jury on a couple of counts. When you went further down the food chain to those below the top, top people, the jury had a little bit more sympathy about conspiracy counts as opposed to individual acts of, of criminal violence that were charged. But um, look, it's the first time the Department of Justice got a conviction of seditious conspiracy in like 25 years in Oath Keepers, and they're going to try it all again three weeks later with, uh, with Proud Boys. Um, the uh, interesting part about it is how many cooperating witnesses there are, those that have already taken a plea deal and been convicted of seditious conspiracy, including, including their lead witness for the government, Jeremy Patino who was one of the right-hand uh, men of Enrique Tario and has already been convicted and pled guilty to this very thing, seditious conspiracy. And again, there's just so much treasure trove for the Department of Justice to choose from in their own words from social media, their communications, their text messages, their emails, everything that they never thought would see the light of day, but it is now going to be writ large on a big screen in the courtroom. <clears throat> I mean, that's what hanged uh, Megs and uh, Rhodes, and I'm sure the same for Enrique Tario and all. As soon as we get through the jury selection process, which hopefully will be done, and they'll be able to, to have opening statements. Karen, what do you think about this particular, we have a, a few minutes left, what do you think about this particular trial and, and the seditious conspiracy count against Proud Boys? Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting trial to watch for sure. Normally, prosecutors can't bring in prior bad acts, you know, prior evidence of violence to show that you have a propensity to commit violence. But in this particular case, prosecutors are going to be able to rely on prior violent acts because they're going to be able to show, for example, that why for why would they beat up police officers? They're going to say, you know, we love police officers. Police officers around the country are have always been part of our our um, our supporting base, and the, so the, they're going to show this this um, anti-cop feeling with a prior attack that Enrique Tario did on burning down a flat a Black Lives Matter flag at a church, and that was where they started getting into fights with with the police, and where they became anti-police. And so, under the the guise of showing motive and intent. Uh, they're going to be able to bring in some of these prior bad acts. Also, the, the Proud Boys are going to try to say, "Oh no, we're just a guys' drinking club. You know, we're not, we're not this violent, horrible group." But so, just to rebut that, they're going to be able. The prosecutors are going to be able to bring in a lot of of that evidence just to show that they really are this extremely violent, uh, just group of people who get in fights all over the country and promote violence. I think I think there's just going to be a couple things to watch. You know, Enrique Tarrio is going to say, I wasn't even there on January 6th. How could I be responsible? So they're going to have to prove that he was part of the planning and organizing and um, and 
you know, and all of that. And and they have a lot of evidence of that. There's going to be evidence that one of his girlfriends gave him, uh, you know, to show that that he gave them something called the 1776 returns, which was a plan for violence on January 6th. Uh, but, you know, the defendants who are on trial, including Enrique Tarrio, are going to say things like maybe we're guilty of trespass, but we, it wasn't a planned attack. And so therefore, it's not seditious conspiracy. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to try to fight the ones that have these these huge prison sentences on the back end, like seditious conspiracy. And that's how they're going to attack the, the evidence. They're going to say it's not a plan. It just kind of it came about that day. It just things got out of control and they're going to actually use the FBI's own informants against them. The the defense is going to use it against the government because they're going to say, look, FBI, you had as many as eight informants in the group, right? And none of them told you about a plan to storm the Capitol. So if had there been a plan and they would have known about it and they would have told you and you would have stopped it again. So where's the seditious conspiracy? Where's the plan? So again, they're just going to try to portray themselves as this, you know, guys drinking club that's patriotic. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see how, how that goes. I don't think it's going to go very well. I think this is going to be a conviction. This group is despicable and violent and they have a long history of it. So so despite these defenses and despite these arguments that they're going to try to make. I think the DOJ is going to um, ha- is going to prosecute them to the fullest and convict them. I agree with you completely. I think it's going to be interesting to watch them put on a defense. I doubt any of them are going to take the stand in their own defense. And I think a jury of their peers in Washington, D.C. is going to convict them just the way they convicted Kelly Meggs and Stuart Rhodes. Well, what a week. Jan 6 committee votes to make criminal referrals to a former president of the United States. The House Ways and Means Committee the next day votes to release and does release his, uh, Donald Trump's tax return, something he, uh, that's been a guarded secret by him, like Golem in the ring for the last seven or eight years. And now we've got justice being served again in the Jan 6 uh, insurrectionists being tried for seditious conspiracy by the Department of Justice. This is the end of the midweek edition of Legal AF with Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Ignifolo. If you can't get your fill and you don't want to wait until Wednesdays and Saturdays with Ben Mysalis and I with and me, you can go watch our hot takes and trending takes hourly on the Midas Touch YouTube network and channel and download us, follow, listen, subscribe, and review everywhere you can get your podcast. It's all free. These are the free ways you can support this free crowd-funded crowd-sourced media network karen i'll see you next week take care bye all